0: Uh, We're just going to go through the the passage that talks about the uh, crucifixion. But I want you to go to the book of Hebrews with me before we uh, go to the gospel. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 9. I want to start, I want to read from verse 20 to the end of that chapter. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 20 says, This is the blood of the covenant which God hath commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood, not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he had been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. And if you go to chapter 10, verse number nine, he says, behold, I have come to do thy will He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, Sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And uh, it, it goes on to say, in verse now 18. Now there, there, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering from sin. Hebrews makes clear something we need to understand as believers, as Christians, that, that in the Old Testament, sacrifices had to be offered continually, yearly, daily. It depended on what it was. But Hebrews, the New Testament, makes clear that there was one sacrifice made one time for all time. And that sacrifice was the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Christ doesn't need to be crucified every day. He does not need to be crucified because one crucifixion wasn't enough. He was crucified once, as the Bible clearly makes it known, that by one act, one time when Jesus went to the Calvary, gave his body and blood, that was sufficient and enough in God's sight and in God's plan that if we believe that, then that one time, acceptance of that and acknowledgement of that one time cleanses us of all our sins. And the Bible says there's no other. It says here, there is no longer any other offering for sin. There is nothing else you can do to forget your sins cleansed but by believing that Christ Jesus bore your sins on Calvary's cross. You can't walk on your knees until they're bloody and that's not going to do it. You can't pour out all the money in your pocket and and think that's going to do it. You can't do good works and think that's going to do it. The only thing that will take away your sin is believing that Jesus Christ went to Calvary's cross. Now go with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter number 27 starting at verse number 1. Now when morning had come all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. It's amazing how in the hearts of men they can plot these types of things. To plot Things of taking one's life, murder. And it says, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate the governor. And then when Judas, who had betrayed him, you see, it goes from verse 3 to 10, we know what happened with the account of Judas. Have any of you in here seen the, the Mel Gibson film, The Passion? How many have not seen it? You've all seen it then. That was—it's a, It's a very powerful and vivid account of the horror of sin and what the heart of man can do willingly. And here we see that Judas, in in chapters 3 to verse 10, Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And when he realized it, remember, he went back and they gave it to them. And they threw it and they said, that's blood money. They were trying to be religious. They're the ones that plotting to kill Jesus, paid Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray him, And then they said, oh, this is blood money. We can't, you know, we it's like, you know, they didn't want to dirty their hands with the 30 pieces, but they wanted to still pursue to kill him. You see, in the hearts of religious people, sometimes hearts of people who say think they're religious can be the most cruel, most vicious, the ones that were to really be out to do you in. The Romans could care less, but it was the the religious people of the day who were plotting to kill Jesus. But it says here in verse 11, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was amazed. You think Jesus didn't know what they were saying? Jesus not only knew what they were saying, Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts. You know, the Bible tells us that, that God is all-knowing. He knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, the Bible says. The word is, is is pierces and it knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when the governor was asking Jesus, do you know what these guys are saying about you? What could Jesus say? There's a time to, there's time to speak up and there's a time to just be quiet. Because there's really no answer to be given. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. Jesus knew the thoughts and intents of their heart. But was Jesus bound by those by their thoughts and intents? No. Jesus was on a mission. Jesus knew something had to be. And every man has a choice in life, whether they're going to choose to accuse Jesus or to accept Jesus, to stand against Jesus or stand with Jesus. And here, the chief priests and the scribes, they took a firm stand that they were going to oppose Jesus and everything he stood for. Although he did miracles, although he opened blind eyes, they couldn't find one sin against him. When he says, that any of you find me guilty of any sin? Not one of them can come and point out a thing that he had did. And all they could come up with was false accusations or things to send to him. And Pilate was amazed that he didn't even answer. Verse 15, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And when therefore they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. See, Pilate knew The reason why the chief priests and the scribes wanted Jesus to be crucified or put to death. His, his, his insight, his discernment was that these people were filled with what? Envy. Envy is a wicked spirit. Envy is a, is a spirit that we do not want to give entrance into our heart. Envy is the spirit that was in these chief priests and scribes That wanted to crucify Christ. That's why we need to guard our hearts and guard our minds against the spirit of envy. As you go through the Word of God, you see the things that jealousy, envy, these things can, can bring the heart to do, can bring a person, a place it could put you in. So we need to guard our hearts against envy because these chief priests and scribes were full of it. Full of envy. And what were they doing with? What was that envy? What was the end result of that envy? What was the? What was envy doing? It was moving towards murder. It was moving toward uh, putting to death innocent man, making false accusations, lies. All that comes out of envy. They were lying. They were deceitful. They were they were uh, proud. All of all of that comes out of the spirit of envy. And so we need to guard our hearts as believers against this envy the spirit of envy we don't want that in our lives we don't want to be envious of anyone we need to be looking at each other to be say how can i be helpful how can i be a blessing not to say how envious i am of someone because that is a foul and wicked spirit the spirit of envy so every time we kind of think that we, we we're kind of like envious that no that's i'm not going there that is That is a foul and a wicked spirit, and I don't want that in me. I want a good spirit. I want love, a spirit of love and of peace and of joy to be in me. And uh, he says, verse 19, And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man or that innocent man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Now here you have Pilate, and here you have his wife. Wives have a great influence on men. Yes, they do. And all the men can say yes. Wives have a powerful influence over the men. Here, Pilate's wife had a dream. And she said she was troubled throughout the day by many, many things concerning Jesus, that he was an innocent man, that he was a righteous man, and that what was coming against him was not good. And she sent word. And when it means sent she has authority and they had to quickly go and they got Pilate's attention although he was sitting on a judgment seat he was interrupted by the messenger from his wife saying "Pilate, your wife just sent this urgent message it's a bulletin it's western union it's a telegram here from your wife now, do you pay attention if your if your wife sends you an urgent message if you're in a business meeting and you got a, a an urgent dispatch from your wife are you going to read it or are you going to put it on the side? You're going to read it, saying, "Hey, this is urgent from my wife. What could it be?" and you're going to want to read it. So this is what Pilate got. Now he's got this urgent message from his wife saying, "Pilate, stop." Do not crucify, or do not have anything. Wash your hands with this, because he's an innocent man. I've had a dream. Now, don't get involved here. It's not your concern. You know, cut yourself loose from this. That is basically what she's telling him. Don't have anything to do with that. He's an innocent man. I had many dreams, and I've been troubled all day with this thought. Now, Pilate, don't. She says here, uh, saying, have nothing to do with that. And so, but what did he do with that message from his wife? He just took it and just brushed it off, kind of. And he had in front of him the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the people. And they were all shouting one thing. And he wasn't, he should have been listening more to the voice of his wife rather than to the voice of those. You know, when we try to please people and we don't look and we don't take heed to the wisdom that is in our wife or in our husband and we try to override that and count that as nothing and try to please our employees or our bosses or something, we can be in in a in a in a position that we're doing the we're going on the wrong road. And so here he just ignored that. It says, But the governor answered, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude uh to put to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, Crucify him. Why were they saying crucify him? Because the chief priests and the scribes, the religious people, were persuading them, persuading them to call for the death of an innocent man. It's so sad when people can make us do something that we shouldn't do or that we might know is not right to do. And even though they come in religious garb or they come as a boss or they come as a a friend or something else, how many of us have been persuaded by friends or those around us, peers or someone, to do something we shouldn't have done? I mean, I've been in that place growing up as a kid getting persuaded by friends to to do something or go somewhere you shouldn't have gone or shouldn't have done. I've been there. And now you look back and you say, well, you know, that cost me. Because I, I was persuaded to do something I shouldn't have done, it cost me. And I know that in my life, you know, I had to ask for forgiveness from the Lord because there were times when I persuaded others to do something that they shouldn't have been doing. And one of the things uh, that grieves me the most in my life is I had a younger brother. I have a younger brother. And when I was younger growing up, I went in the wrong direction and I kind of persuaded him. He looked up to me and I kind of persuaded him to go in the ways that I was. And he got caught up in those things. And when I got saved, I couldn't persuade him to come out of that. And now I have to live with with that thinking that had I not persuaded him to go in that direction, would he have gone? Would he have been caught up in that? Now, I continue to believe God and pray that he'll be delivered from that, from those ways. But you see that when you persuade someone to go and do something that they shouldn't be doing, we don't know how far that's going to make them go, bring them into, into areas. So persuasion, we, we need to be careful what we persuade or talk people into doing or believing unless it's believing on the Lord and bringing Him into the ways of righteousness, our persuasion is powerful and has an effect. When someone persuades you to go and do something you shouldn't do, you should turn around and say, no, rather why don't we go to church or something like that. You know what I'm trying to say? Turn it around and persuade them to do good. Persuade them on the right path. Don't be persuaded by those who open their mouth to, take, to tell you to do good or do someone else harm. You don't want to do that. You don't want to go there. And here it says that they, the chief priests and the scribes, they persuaded the people. And listen what happened. See, they persuaded the people. I'm not saying that the people wouldn't have thought that, but to be persuaded means that they probably didn't have the mindset to want to have Christ put to death or crucified. So they had to be persuaded to say that, to go there, to be in that position. And it says, the governor uh, in verse number 22 then pilate said to the those who were persuaded what shall i do with christ and they all said let him be crucified and pilate uh, and he said why what evil has he done but they kept shouting all the more saying let him be crucified you see once they get caught up in something it's it just it just keeps on snowballing kind of speak and it gets worse and worse when you're caught up in something you don't get you know, you just say, oh, I'll just do it a little bit. Nothing's going to happen. But what happens is once you get your foot in the water, you know what? It gets deeper and deeper and you keep going and it snowballs. And now they were saying, they got persuaded to say, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, uh, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude saying, I'm an innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. You see what the lies of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, you look how far this has gone. They persuaded the people to rise up against an innocent man and demand that he be crucified. And they said, let his blood be upon us. But they didn't stop there. They didn't stop there. Where did they go? They went to their children and future generations. They said, let His blood be on us and on our children. You see how envy, how deep and far-reaching envy can go in destroying people's lives, not only lives, but families. You see how these families now, these people are crying out, let the blood be upon us and upon our children or upon our families. They were involving their families in this sin of envy in the sin of putting Christ to death. And that's why we have to be careful of envy and persuasion to do wicked because it not only comes upon our life, but it follows through our life. It flows from our life into the lives of our children. And if we're bringing up our children in a godly way, then that godliness is going to flow into their lives. And they're going to grow up to be godly good children who are going to be persuasive in life for the good not for evil. But here you see how they involved even their their children, how the, the, the enemy doesn't care whether you're young or whether you're old. He wants to see your whole family, everyone, wiped out. But Jesus wants to see your whole family blessed and growing and waxing strong in every good thing. He wants to bless your children. Jesus wants to see your children grow and wax strong. And here he said, then he released Barabbas for them, and after he deep Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they nailed down before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him, and they took the reed, and they began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took off his robe off, and put garments on him, and led him away to crucify him. You see, Jesus, even in that time where we never understand and we'll never know what 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 he fully paid, but here he was being mocked, spit upon, being uh, having all of these these soldiers, these men around him mocking him and and whatever, and yet. He had the power and authority at any moment to, to to just wipe every one of them off the face of the earth, to make their existent, make them no more existent in this world. But yet he endured it because of you and because of me. And it says, and as they were coming out, and here is, is, is if you have seen the movie, you've seen the, the the brutality of the crucifixion of the of the whipping and all. And we don't know. We we know we don't comprehend the brutality. Of man you know we, we, we live in a world where uh, we just don't we don't get it but mankind can be very brutal can be very wicked very it's har- very horrifying what man will do to man and the depths that they will go you go to and uh, uh, pray nobody here ever ever uh, experiences it or sees it but there's people in this world today that are being tortured and and brutalized for the gospel of Christ but here Christ was was cru- was was whipped and as they were coming out, he was so bad that he couldn't even carry the what they call the crossbar. In, Roman, in the Roman law, when they crucified a person, they, they whipped them and then they, they attached the crossbar to them, and they had to carry that from there to the place where the pole was, and then they attached that on, and that is where they're crucified. But Jesus was so badly beaten, so badly was he brutalized, that he wasn't even able to carry the weight of that crossbar. And so when they came out, they found this man uh, Simeon, who was a sirene, and they had him, they made him carry the cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And it says uh, in verse, I just wanted to, you know, to look at this other place here. The chief priests in verse 41, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they continually continually mocked him. Envy is a a spirit that mocks, that makes fun of for whatever reason. And they continually mock Jesus, saying He saved others. He can't save Himself. Let Him come down now from the cross and we shall believe Him. He trusts God. Let Him deliver Him now. If He takes pleasure in Him, He said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with Him were casting the same insult at Him. Christ was continually insulted. From the beginning to the very, uh, even the time He was on the cross, He was mocked and insulted continuously without ceasing. They were continually mocking Him, making fun of Him. We go through periods of life and periods of time when people make fun of us or mock us because we're believers and we get all bothered and we get all upset about it. Oh, gee, someone made fun of me today because I'm a believer. Well, Jesus bore, bore insult after insult after insult. We have to realize that in this life, people are going to be filled with envy, the spirit of envy and everything else, and we will face those who will come against us and mock us. But we got to know who we are in Jesus Christ and say, I'm you know, say what you will, but I am a son of the Most High God. I know my future, my destiny. I know who I am. I know where I'm going. I know my God is the glory and the lifter of my head. We don't have to be afraid or of them or put our heads down in front of them. We need to hold our heads up above them and in the face of them and say, you can mock all you want. I know who I am in Christ Jesus. I'm not ashamed of who I am. When a person is not sure of who he is or ashamed of who he is, then he can, someone says something, they can put their head down and say, oh yeah. But when you know who you are, nobody can make your head bow down. When you know that you're the Son of the Most High God, nobody can say anything to you to make your head go down or be apologetic. I'm not apologetic that I'm the Son of the Living God. I'm not apologetic that Christ Jesus bore my sins on Calvary's cross and washed me clean. I'm not ashamed that I have life everlasting through Christ Jesus, that I am a new creation in Christ. I'm not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here... It goes on to say, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth. And about the ninth hour, Christ cried out, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ela, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabbatini, and this, that is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it began saying, This man is called Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking the sponge, he filled it with sour and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come. And give him, and to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Christ did a, there was a lot of things that, that took place while Christ was on the cross. One of the things at the very end here, it says that Christ, before he gave up his, gave up, and you understand the words gave up, no one took it from him. No one took his life from him. No one took the spirit from him. He gave up, it says, he gave up the Spirit. He gave up life. He could have, Christ is Christ and nobody can take it from him. He willingly laid down his life. He willingly allowed them to put him on the cross. He willingly gave up, yielded up his Spirit. And at the, I just, I'm gonna come back to verse 50, but I want you to see something. And when he yielded up his Spirit, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. And the rocks were split. You can think about that time when Christ was on there, when he gave out that last yell, that last shout. He gave it up. And it says that the veil in the temple was torn, the earth shook, and the rocks split. I mean, can you imagine the sound of rocks splitting and the earth shaking? You know, uh, that that had to be, and it says that tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they enter the holy city and appear to many. Now there weren't ghosts running around when the, when Christ died on the Calvary's cross. It says the earth shook and the rocks cracked. It says uh, graves were open, but it says they came forth after the resurrection. They weren't going around while he was crucified because the Bible says in Corinthians 2 that Christ is the first fruits of, the, of those who are raised from the dead. Christ had to be raised first before those others could come to life. So that's why the Word says after His resurrection, they appear to many. So you got to... We'll, and we'll talk about that next time, maybe Sunday. But they didn't go around appearing to many at the time of the crucifixion. It was afterwards. But at the time of the crucifixion, there was such a, a, a supernatural thing that everyone... Uh, got to hear it. And it says that many went away beating their breasts saying, oh man, this this, this was a supernatural happening here. This wasn't a, a natural occurrence. And the verse 54 it says, now the centurion and those who were with with were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. Now in the Gospel of, of Mark it says that the centurion now the centurion he, he's a, a Roman officer. He's in charge of a 100 men, and he was given charge to watch over the crucifixion. Now, watch means not just to sit there and watch to see what's going on. Watch meant to be guard, to be a guard over that whole scenario at the crucifixion because they knew that there were uh, there was conflict, there was controversy there. And so they set the centurion over this crucifixion site to make sure that Jesus stood on the cross, that nobody came to take him or that he didn't get down from the cross. So they set a centurion over there. A centurion should have been uh, with, uh, with his men somewhere else. But this event was so important that they assigned a centurion to oversee the matter. So this centurion, again, he's in charge of a hundred warriors, a hundred men, Roman soldiers. He's not a wimp. He's seen, he's, he knows what war is, he knows what battle is, he knows when a man is alive and when a man is dead. A centurion leads a hundred warriors in battle. Now, do you think a centurion will know when a man is dead? Hmm? You think so? I think so. If he's, if he's a centurion, if he's got to that position in the Roman army to be a centurion, he's a warrior. And he knows what to do, uh, and he knows what he can recognize. He could, he could look down and tell when a man is dead or not. And they set him over there. And what happened is when Christ, the, the Bible says in, uh, in Mark, when the centurion, when he was there looking into the face of Jesus, when he cried out that loud shout, it says, when he saw him cry out, it said, he fell back in awe and he cried out, This is the Son of God. Because that last cry of Jesus, you know, the centurion, he again, he saw many people die on the cross. And a lot of them cried out and stuff. Maybe with pain and stuff in in the last day. But this cry of Jesus did something that changed the centurion's whole attitude and picture and mindset of who he was. And you know when when their warriors are at war, and when there's a cry of defeat, and there's a cry of victory. You know when a warrior has victory, the Bible, you know, it says that there is a cry of victory, yeah, or something like that, to that effect. There's a loud cry of triumph, of victory. And this cry that Jesus let out, I don't think it was a cry of agony or pain. I think it was a cry of victory. Saying it's, it, cause he, his last words were, it is finished. And it was a cry that was a victorious cry. It wasn't a pity, pathetic cry on Calvary's cross. It was a cry of, it is finished! It was a loud roar. It was, it was something that made the centurion shake saying, whoa, this, that's, that's not a, a man who's gone down to defeat. That's a man who's, who's uh, like a victor. And it says, once he cried out, and said it is finished, and the earth shook with Christ's emphasis on that shout of victory, and the earth shaking and the rock splitting, this centurion this was shaken. His whole his whole being was very shaken. And he said, this is the Son of God. He said, this is in a man crucified. This is the Son of God, he said. And so Christ's last cry on Calvary's cross was a cry of victory and of triumph. He won a victory for you and me. He didn't go down to defeat. The world may have seen a man that cr- hang his head in death, but the centurion knew this man had a shout of victory and the earth shook, rocks cracked, and the, the heavens grew dark and black. He knew there was something supernatural. And this centurion, who saw many battles, saw many men die, saw Christ on that cross, and he didn't see a man die He saw someone winning a victory, and he said, Surely, he said, Truly, verily, verily, this is the Son of God. That's what he said. And that's what the men around him said. And that's why the people went away, beating their breasts. They said, Oh man, this this is this is this is something happened here that's supernatural. Christ didn't go down as a wimp. Christ didn't go down crying in agony. He suffered, yes, he did. He bore the sins of the world upon him. When he was in the garden, he said, Father, if there be any other way, any other way, you show me. But he said no. He said, if your will, let your will be done. But when he bore it all, it was like a cry of victory. Because when he gave up the ghost, where did he go? The Bible says, when he gave up his spirit on the cross, he went down into the, to the, to the prison with the keys of life and death. And he was about to set the captives free. When he gave out that last shout, it wasn't pathetic. It was a shout of victory, of triumph. Yeah! Yes! It is finished! Yeah! Victory is mine! That's what Jesus was crying out on Calvary's cross. Because from there he went to set the captives free. And after that he came and we're going to talk something about the resurrection. But Christ went down in triumph and in victory. And that centurion knew it. He said, this man is a, is a victor. He's a son of God. Something is supernatural here. This isn't a natural crucifixion. This guy is victorious. This man is a son of God. So he shouted Jesus. He shouted a triumphant shout. And he said, it is finished. And it wasn't like, it is finished, Father. It is finished. No. It is finished! It's done. Hallelujah. Glory. Yes. He knew what he had to do. And he knew that when it was finished, nothing was left but glory. From there, everything was upward. Nothing was, well, he went down to set the captives free. But from that point on, the worst was over, and now Jesus was more than a conqueror, because by His stripes, now from that moment on, we have been healed. From the moment Christ cried out, it is finished. We were healed from that moment on, because that's when it was, that's really when it was over. When He rose, that sealed everything. The resurrection sealed everything for all of eternity. But when He cried out, it is finished. It was a triumphant shout. It was a shout of glory that you and I can take pride and joy in. Jesus, my savior, cried out, it is finished. And he was a victorious winner. He came out on top on Calvary's cross. He, he, he did it all for me. So when you look at Calvary and you see he cried out, it is finished. You got to remember it was a victorious shout that it is finished. And because look what He did. Look what He's won for us. Look what He's made for us. And He had to suffer. He had to go through that brutality. He had to go through that mocking process. But He took it. He was man enough. He was more than a man to take it. He was more than a man to bear your sins and mine. But when it was done, on that final shout, Jesus said, It's over! It's done! It is finished! Hallelujah! Um, Now, don't, he, I mean, his shout was greater than me, but but I'm just trying to get you to the point that he he probably shook the, uh, his voice, that shout probably caused the earthquake, and probably caused the the stones to crack. When he shouted out with glory that it was finished, it was done. He was a victor in Christ Jesus. And then afterwards you see that they came and they took him and they put him in the tomb and they, they even then the the the, the described in the Pharisees. They said, you know, hey, uh, he said he's going to rise again on the third day. We're afraid, you know, because of that shout there and all that stuff. We're we're afraid now. We're afraid he's going to rise up on the third day. And so they said, give us a give us some soldiers. And Pilate said, you already got a watch. You you know you got a group assigned to you. Let them go stand guard over it. And we know that they sent them they because they were shaken now. They were a little scared because had Jesus just gone down quietly. They would have said, "Ah, see, nothing to it." But when he shouted out, and the sky grew black, and the earth shook, and the rocks cracked, they said, Whoa, "Something's going on here." You know, <laughs> they were a little nervous. I think they were shaking in their boots. I think their knees were rattling a little bit. And they said, uh, uh, "Can you please put a guard over this tomb so make sure he doesn't come out?" You know, something here is not right. And so they put a guard over the over the over the tomb. And we know that they they set the Roman army uh, the soldiers around there. To guard them. But when Christ... He was brutalized. Terribly brutalized. But that's what He came to do. He had a price to pay. He knew it. He knew what He had to face. But did He give up? Did he He looked. He saw your face. He saw mine. He, he knew our names. He knew that we were going to be born. He knew. He's Alpha and Omega. He, he took your sin and mine upon that Calvary's cross. We we can't comprehend the pain that He suffered that night, that day, on Calvary, that morning on Calvary. At 9 o'clock they crucified Him. and We don't know all that He suffered. But we know one thing. He finished the price that had to be paid. He became the final sacrifice once and for all for you and me. And with that great shout, it is finished. With that shout of victory that He gave on Calvary's cross, he sealed it we have been healed by his stripes we have been healed can we stand this night this this, this evening